This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Kiora chums, and welcome to the Murky Waters podcast. My name is Michael Heltzinger, your host. And if this is your first time listening into Murky Waters, a very warm and hearty welcome to this episode called We Need to Talk About Sharks. Murky Waters is about interviewing the passionate people who study sharks to learn about these fascinating animals in a naturalistic rather than sensationalistic way. You can find the podcast online and on social media. Simply search for the Murky Waters podcast where I'll be sharing some fantastic content. On today's episode, I was lucky to speak with the shark scientist and science communicator extraordinaire, Melissa Marquez. Melissa has given a TEDx talk. She writes for the Forbes Science column, was recently on Discovery's Shark Week, has her own podcast plus a handful of other outreach projects. In the meantime, she also completed a master's looking at habitat use of sharks using fisheries data from New Zealand at Victoria University and is embarking at a PhD now at Curtin University in Western Australia. I wanted to talk to Melissa about why she believes it is so important as a scientist to engage outside of the scientific community. We talked about some of her successes, such as receiving over 700,000 views on an article she wrote but also some of the challenges she faces talking about sharks. I'll let you listen to the rest, and without further ado, let's dive right into this interview with Melissa Marquez. Hola, Melissa. Great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Could you please introduce yourself to the listeners and tell us what got you into studying sharks and why? So my name is Melissa Cristina Marquez, and I'm a Latina marine biologist who studies sharks and their relatives, the skates, the rays, and the chimeras. And collectively, this group is known as chondrichthians. And I've always been fascinated by misunderstood predators, and I found that sharks are the most misunderstood. So I founded the Fins United Initiative program to basically teach the greater public about these animals and the diversity of the chondrichthians as well as the people who work on or work with these animals. So I'm hoping my outreach efforts, which some people have actually said liken me to a PR manager for sharks, help people show how amazing these animals are. And yeah, that's why I love them so much. They're so misunderstood, but they're so amazing. On top of the Finns United initiative that you've started, you've also completed a master's, if I'm right, at Victoria University of Wellington. It was titled The Habitat Use Throughout a Chondrithian's Life, and Chondrithian is just sharks, rays, skates, and chimeras. Yes. Could you tell us a bit about your master's and what you found? 
So when I moved from Florida to New Zealand, I will be the first to tell you that I did not know anything about chimeras, <laughs> even though they were my study animal for my master's. But I found it really cool because I got to study these mysterious animals that most people actually don't know about. I specifically focused on five different species in New Zealand and the effects of deep sea fishing. Yep. Uh, basically, over the last few decades, there's been a lot of effort and research devoted towards evaluating and reducing bycatch, which is the part of a fisheries catch that mm -hmm. is made up of a non-target species. And there's a particular focus on quantifying the risk for chondrichthians because of their high vulnerability to overfishing. So my study focused on how these five chimeras, which had different depth ranges throughout New Zealand, overlapped with fishery areas. So how their habitats overlapped with fisheries. Mm -hmm. And these are very complex and barely understood deep sea ecosystems, which can actually be very easily overwhelmed by fishing technologies that rip through them, such as uh, giant nets and the weights that come mm -hmm. with these nets. So like sharks, many deep sea animals have this K-style lifestyle, which means they take a really long time to reach sexual maturity. Mm -hmm. And once they're sexually active, they only give birth to a few young after a really long pregnancy. That means that this lifestyle that they live makes these creatures especially vulnerable since they can't repopulate quickly if overfished. And we know mm -hmm. very little about the species down there. So that includes chimeras. And what I was able to do with some of my research and with a data set that I had was to find the life history stage habitats, nurseries or mating grounds for some of these chimeras, but not all of them. That may be because they're either the outside of the coverage of the data set that I had, mm -hmm. which means they're also likely outside of the range of commercial fisheries, or because they don't actually exist for some chondrichthians. So a lot of research scientists are now starting to say that maybe not all sharks, rays, skates, and maybe even chimeras don't have what was once touted as the most important part of the life history for these animals, which is a nursery. They can just lay an egg and leave it there because especially down deep, a lot of that habitat looks the same. Is it a worry with deep water species that as fishing effort increases, as fish stocks are depleting, fishermen will start fishing deeper? Is that a concern? Yeah, we've actually already seen it start happening where a lot of people, when they're no longer being able to catch the amount of fish that they're wanting in the normal fisheries, they are starting to get deeper. But the thing is, again, we don't know that much about our deep sea habitats. And so what effect this pressure of fishing we're putting on it, we have no idea what that's going to do to that environment. And with your results, with your masters, anything that you found out in particular? Yeah, we had a set criteria that a certain habitat had to meet. So for like a nursery, you want a lot of juveniles to be caught and not that many adults. And if there were any adults, it would most likely be females who got caught either because they were giving birth or just because they were in the area. And so we actually did find possible nurseries for some of those chimeras. That's actually research that I'm working on right now to hopefully get published soon. Knock oh, on wood. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Cool, I'm excited to see it. Same. <laughs> <laughs> I believe you also embarked recently on a PhD. Yeah, I just started in June. Awesome. Um, and I'm really excited. I'm currently working on defending my proposal in a few weeks so yep. I can start taking ethics classes and then starting my field research. Exciting. And can you tell us a bit about what your proposal is going to be? 
Yeah, I'm going to be looking at shark habitat use in the Indian Ocean, as well as looking at factors that sway how the general public perceives sharks. I think that's so important, especially where you are right now in Western Australia. Yeah, so Western Australia is going to be one of the study sites. And I'm interested to get around and talk to not just the people who work with sharks, such as shark scientists, but also the people who day-to-day see sharks, so commercial fishermen, Mm -hmm. uh, recreational fishermen, as well as talking to the general public to see how each of their backgrounds, those factors come together to possibly create an attitude or a perception about these sharks. And what I've noticed so far in Australia... Uh, specifically Western Australia, it is a very complex relationship. Yeah, I've grown up in that, Melissa, and I could (laughs) agree that it is quite complicated. It's a love-hate relationship. It really is. I actually just talked about this the other day, um, and I posted a quote up on Twitter about how we love to hate our monsters. Yeah. And we have this fascination with these animals that causes a bunch of fear, basically, because it helps us prepare for that unknown, for that fear. Oh, they're amazing animals, and I so wish that people got to know them in a different way. Exactly. I think that's why things like your Fins United initiative and things like this podcast and just talking to people about sharks is so important because education is empowering. I 100% agree. Science communication is incredibly important and something I think scientists can continue to improve so research can have more of a benefit for the community and society Psychoms is something that you are real proactive about doing and from just some basic background research you've been all over the world presenting and talking to people for instance you were recently on the discovery channel shark week you write for forbes science column presented a tedx talk writing a book if i'm right yep <laughs> <laughs> cool run an educational program which you talked about the Finns united initiative and you've also started your own podcast called conciencia azul And that translates to blue awareness. And that's to educate Spanish-speaking people about marine science. Very true. Why do you think communicating science and doing this outreach work is so important? You know, don't get me wrong. I think publishing papers is super important in the scientific world. But let's Mm -hmm. be honest, who's actually going to read those? Maybe a few other scientists who are kind of in your field, but not the actual public. Mm -hmm. And... It's not that they're not interested in it. It's either that they can't read the jargon that's being used, so big words that they have no idea what it means, or they just don't have access to the paper. I mean, me as a student, I still find trouble accessing some journal papers that my school isn't subscribed to. So I can't imagine the actual average person who's like, oh, let me learn about shark research, can't see anything. Mm -hmm. So I believe that letting the greater public know what is going on in our world in a terminology that they can understand and in a language that they can understand is a basic human right Mm -hmm. because it basically leads to a scientific literate society that leads to a better future. And I've always likened myself to kind of a bridge between the scientific ivory tower and the rest (laughs) of us (laughs) because I understand the science and I understand what the people want. So let me funnel that information they never get to people in a way that's entertaining, that's quick and snappy, and that gets the point across. Not only so they can be in awe of our natural marine world and these predators, these sharks, but also make better informed decisions that relate to this topic. A lot of people, they get their information in regards to sharks through the media. Mm-hmm. And the media isn't always correct in what it is putting out there. No. And so a lot of people's 
ideas of certain shark conservation issues are skewed to what they've read in the media. For a lot of people, they think that plastic pollution is the biggest problem that sharks are facing, but it's actually not. So I think that's really, really important to let people know what's going on in our world because that way they become better informed consumers and also better informed decision makers. But communicating with people can be hard. I've had that happen a thousand times. I'm sure you have too. (laughs) Absolutely. You said people think that the biggest threat to sharks is plastic pollution. What Mm -hmm. do you believe to be the biggest threat facing shark populations at present? Hands down, the biggest threats that face sharks and their relatives are overfishing and bycatch. So fishing fleets, Mm -hmm. biggest threat to all sharks, but especially the large ones, because they account for over half of all identified shark catch globally in target Mm -hmm. fisheries or as bycatch. It's a pretty unsustainable trend that has actually paved the way for declines in some population numbers and even regional declines. For example, the shortfin mako shark, one of the fastest sharks that we have in our oceans, if not the fastest shark, and it can't outswim extinction. While scientists have known that sharks and fishing fleets have shared the same areas, they didn't actually know how much or how bad of an overlap this was until just recently. So I actually covered it for Forbes. There's a new report from Nature that just came out, and it's made up of 150 researchers worldwide. And basically what it shows is that major high seas fishing activities are currently centered on ecologically important shark hotspots worldwide. That's why our numbers of sharks are basically taking a nosedive. Yeah, and it would be so hard to quantify, which I'm sure there's a lot of sharks that are distributed as for fish and chips that we don't even know of. Exactly, yeah. I mean, this is of them actually knowing it. Who Mm -hmm. even knows for illegal fishing what's going on and what numbers that's putting in? As you said, you know, a lot of people, they don't know that fish and chips a lot of times, like in New Zealand and in Australia, is shark. In New Zealand, heck, sometimes it's even chimera. So, again, it's communicating this kind of information to people so they can be better consumers and make better choices. Knowing this kind of information, it might make someone stop and think twice about what kind of fish they buy, or maybe it motivates them to download a sustainable seafood app. In terms of science communication, are there any challenges you've found when communicating with people about sharks? Yeah, I mean, communicating with people is hard. Mm -hmm. And you need to know your audience before you open your mouth. Are you talking to senior citizens or are you talking to a kindergarten class? People who live by the coast or people who have never seen the ocean ever in their lives. What message you give to them varies by who it is that you're presenting for. And even when you know your audience, sometimes your delivery can fall flat. I think it's definitely a practice makes perfect game. And I was just talking to someone recently, and one of the stats that I like to use is Mm -hmm. that you're more likely to get squished by a vending machine (laughs) um, than ever get bitten by a shark. And I had someone come by after that talk, and they were like, oh, I loved the examples you were giving, but be careful with the examples that you use, because I once used that example, and someone's brother was actually killed by a vending machine, and I was like, oh, You know, it's one of those things where you do have to be mindful about the examples and the information you're putting out there and how you deliver it. But, you know, again, practice makes perfect. And that's why I practice on many different platforms with many different audiences. Oh, good on you, Melissa. We need more people doing that. Could you tell us a bit about some of these projects and the ways that you're practicing? 
you've talked about the Finch United initiative, but how about your podcast? Conciencia Azul is essentially the Spanish version of Andrew Lewin's Speak Up for Blue podcast. We got to this agreement of me interviewing Spanish-speaking marine researchers and conservationists about their work. Mm-hmm. Because even though science communication has become diverse, it's not inclusive. I'll give you an example. The majority of the initiatives for science communication are solely in English, which is great. But for those who don't speak English, this leaves them out of a really important conversation about their natural world. So this is kind of my way of pulling up a chair to the quote-unquote psychom table (laughs) and telling Spanish speakers like, hey, you're welcome to this conversation about conservation. So me interviewing these Spanish-speaking marine scientists, researchers, conservationists about their work and getting to broadcast it worldwide for those whose first or main language is Spanish is a great way of essentially practicing what I preach and making my science communication be inclusive and diverse. And the name, actually, you said that conciencia translates to awareness, which is true. It loosely translates also to conscious of. Um, But if you actually break those two words apart, so con and ciencia, Mm -hmm. it means with science. So it's a play on words of a blue state of mind, but also blue science. Very clever. You've also been involved in Discovery Channel's Shark Week for the past two seasons. Although Shark Week has been obviously contentious in the past, I loved it when I was younger and was glued just to about any nature documentary I could see. The recent show was called Great White Killzone, Guadalupe. What a title. What was this show about and did you have a highlight from that trip? You know what? Same like you. I grew up watching Shark Week. It's actually the thing that got me hooked on sharks outside of just being curious about them. When I moved from Mexico to the States, my parents didn't want me running around the house. So they were just like, here, have the remote, have the TV, sit and (laughs) watch all of the shows. And I was like, oh, this is new. I never get to watch TV. And I flipped to Discovery Channel, which I don't think I watched in Mexico. But instantly, the first thing I saw was this great white shark leaping out of the ocean. And I had always said that I wanted to be a marine biologist. But as soon as I saw that, I was like, I want to study that. (laughs) And I was hooked. So yeah, Shark Week, you know, it's been around now for over 30 years. Mm -hmm. And it's definitely kept people talking about sharks, both in good ways and in bad ways. And I was really lucky that I've been a part of Shark Week for the past two years So the most recent show encompassed following a team of scientists using different technology to essentially figure out great white shark hunting behaviors Mm -hmm. in the volcanic island of Guadalupe Island, which is about 150 miles west off of Mexico's Baja California Peninsula. Mm -hmm. And there's hundreds of great white sharks there that gather to feast on fish, on elephant seals, on Guadalupe fur seals, but... What a lot of people don't know is that the water there is really clear. It's... So they can't perform sneak ambush attacks like, oh. say, in the murky waters of South Africa. Yeah, wow. Yeah, I mean, I've never been to Guadalupe before this show. So I always figured that pictures from Guadalupe were photoshopped a little yep. bit. Like, oh, yeah, you know, the backscatter and whatnot. And there you yep. go. You've got a really clear picture. But the first time I went in their cage, I was like holy crap, this is actually really, really clear. Like, I felt like I was in a blue screen almost. It was so clear of the water. That's crazy because they're ambush predators. So it was the show just basically looking at their different way of predating? Yeah. So we attached tags to them that showed depth temperature, whether it was day or night, and followed them. Um, But it also had cameras to see 
if it did catch something, to catch it on camera. Dr. Giannis and his PhD student, Sarah Luongo, are currently analyzing the data from those tags, but they've so far found that each shark hunts differently. So instead of there just being one area in Guadalupe that these sharks are hunting in, essentially Guadalupe is this quote-unquote kill zone. (laughs) It was a lot of fun to film the show, even with the difficulties of losing tags, of inclement weather, of crew members battling seasickness. It was amazing just to see something that a lot of people don't get to see, uh, which is these great white sharks in their natural habitat and tons of great white sharks. Oh, that's dreamy, Melissa. And how long were you out at sea? Did you just go for, say, a week-long expedition? Yeah, so we were there for about a week, and then it took me a few days to get to and from Guadalupe, just because Australia is quite far away. (laughs) Yeah. It was amazing. The crew was amazing. Not even just the Shark Week crew, but the actual boat crew. Some of the best food I think I've ever had on a Oh, now you're talking. Was served to me there. <laughs> For shark scientists, it must have been a dream come true as well. It, oh, 100%, definitely. Crystal clear, blue, beautiful waters. There's white sharks everywhere. Yeah, it's amazing. And I couldn't believe this story. So when I was doing some background reading, looking at this program in Shark Week and your previous program in Shark Week, it says you were bitten by a crocodile whilst filming. <laughs> I couldn't believe that out of everything you get bitten by, it's a crocodile. What? Can you tell us how this happened and if it changed the way you feel about crocodiles? <laughs> yeah, that story is an easy Google search nowadays. <laughs> yeah. What ended up happening was while filming for Shark Week last year, I got bitten and dragged by a 10-foot American crocodile yep. in the mangroves of Cuba while filming at night and to make a very long story short it eventually let me go with a little struggling like i didn't have to punch it or anything mm-hmm. and i've got some cool sh- scars to show how lucky i was <laughs> nice, nice. Uh, but it hasn't changed how i see crocodiles i mean i always respected them i grew up around their cousins the alligators in florida so i always knew to you know give them their space and not to mess with them <laughs> but you know what it actually has done it's given me a new way to discuss shark bites with people because That's... I understand that fear firsthand. So, you know, it wasn't a shark that bit me, but it was another animal that is very demonized, that has big teeth and isn't exactly cuddly, which yeah. sounds a lot like a shark. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was lucky that it let me go without much of a struggle. A lot of people aren't that lucky, but I get that fear of being dragged away, of getting bitten, of something happening. So I can talk to them about that and talk to them about how little of a chance it is. But if something does happen, I can tell them, all right, this is what I did. This is what the experts say to do in regards to that kind of situation. It's all about preparation. You know, humans, we fear the unknown, but if you have more education, more knowledge about something, it seems a little bit less scary. Exactly. Did you notice that after entering the ocean or just swimming or anything like that, Were you more scared of something unknown happening? No, you know, I was just filming something with uh, National Geographic and it was the first time I was in the water again at night. Yeah. But because of where I was, I knew nothing bad was going to happen. This is the best case scenario for me to get back into the water at night without having to worry about anything. Yeah, like calmly, essentially. It's 
in there in the back of my head, but I know it's such a small chance. I have a bigger chance of something happening with my scuba deer than I ever have of something happening with one of the animals. It was an accident that could have happened to anybody. It just happened to happen to me. And even though we did everything right, it still ended up happening. While I would have liked to have never gotten bitten by a crocodile, it's led me to talk to people about predator and human interactions in a way that a lot of people don't have. I think that's really important because it gives you this personal relatability with those people, which I'm sure lots of other scientists don't have. I can only think of a handful of people like that. Yeah. After I got bit, one of the things that we wanted to let everyone know is that I was given the okay to stay on the show because I did stay on the show, but also that I didn't blame the crocodile and I didn't. As soon as they pulled me up out of the water, the first thing that I said was, it's just pressure. It was just an exploratory bite because I know what kind of damage a crocodile could have done. Yeah, they've got the strongest jaws. Yeah, exactly. I knew it was just trying to figure out what the heck I was. And when I figured out, oh, she doesn't taste good at all. They spit me out. The interesting thing with that is with sharks, because they also have exploratory bites. And I remember doing research in South Africa and they were just talking about how they would deploy different seal decoys and sometimes when they were measuring the bite force, it was like the bite force of a human jaw. And it's something I reckon a lot of people yeah. would consider is that sharks do exploratory bites or bumps and for them to explore the environment, that's how they do it. Exactly. They don't have hands like us. One of the examples I give to students or to audiences is you see a plate of cookies in the kitchen table, but you can't tell if it's oatmeal raisin, which you don't like, or chocolate chip cookies, which you do like. So you take a little nibble to figure out which is which. And if it's oatmeal raisins, you usually spit it out. And then if it's a chocolate chip cookie, you keep munching. But the problem is shark teeth are designed to go through blubber, through bone, through muscle. Look at how badly we bleed from a paper cut. Mm Mm-hmm. So, of course, their teeth are going to do more damage to us because we're not its prey. Yep. Did get a ridiculous amount of views on one of your Forbes science articles. Yeah. So, I got 770,000 views. Yeah, yep, um, that was right. It was really interesting research on great white sharks in South Africa yeah. um, and how they have left the area and new sharks have taken up that niche. Seven gill sharks. Yay. I shouldn't say yay, but it's the study species that we study in University of Otago. Just a bit of a shout out. Oh, I love them. I really, really, really want to go diving with them in Fjordland so badly. Yeah, that's top of my list. I'm hoping to do that in December. But tell us about this Forbes Science article. Is there any idea why they're leaving? And can you explain the science behind what happens when a top predator like the white shark moves and how this results? in other predators taking over? Yeah, so I got to cover some research done by Neil Hammerschlag and the rest of his team in regards to great white sharks uh, leaving a specific area in South Africa and another top predator, the seven-gill shark, coming in and essentially taking over that niche. I find it really interesting. Like, First of all, obviously I love great white sharks, but yep. the seven-gill sharks are like another love of mine. I've been able to go diving with them in South Africa, and they're like these big dogs yes. that start out small, and they're like on your lap, and then they grow up, and they don't realize how big they are, and they still think you can fit in your lap. Yep. That's like them. They don't know personal space. 
So I was like, yes, there's two sharks that I really love, but also there's a little bit of mystery of why have the white sharks left. Mm. Um, and one of the reasons why people think is the orcas the that orcas. are there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the orcas, which everybody loves because of Shamu, but orcas mm -hmm. are actually terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> they terrify me a lot because, more than sharks. Oh, heck yeah. Like, look, they're terrifying. They're beautiful animals, top predators of the ocean, hands down, yeah, even the, over great whites and whatnot. The apex um, but they're smart. Yeah. And so they target the liver of the sharks because it's got the most oil and that's what they want. They want the liver. Mm -hmm. I did read a report or two of them going for the claspers, which I feel real bad for the sharks. Oh, wow. Yeah. I wonder if there's a um, nutritional value or something in the claspers. Yeah, I know. I love learning about claspers. <laughs> so, yeah, I was able to cover this research. And it's really interesting. It's made the front of all of Forbes. It made the front of the science page. It took off, which was really cool for me. Yeah. But, you know, that's a science communicator's dream right mm -hmm. there. The only response I had similar to that was mm -hmm. the bio tweet that I did a few yeah. years ago that helped inspire the Bill Nye Meat Science Twitter mm -hmm. hashtag. Essentially, that became a part of Bill Nye's show. So I'm super lucky that the sign uh, allowed me this platform to be able to talk about sharks, and I definitely took advantage of it during Shark Week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'd like to talk to you about your TEDx talk entitled Sharks and Female Scientists, More Alike mm -hmm. Than You Think. Could you please tell us what inspired you to give this TED talk and what it was about? I got really tired <laughs> of the lack of representation of women shark scientists in the media. Mm -hmm. I also got really tired of the people who are narrating the shows being like, oh, look at this big boy. And you couldn't see any claspers, which is the one sign you can tell if it's a girl or a boy shark. Yeah, exactly. And this was like me at eight being like, there's no claspers. <laughs> and my parents probably wondering why their eight-year-old daughter has a keen eye <laughs> for shark <laughs> genitalia. So basically, I pitched the idea to TEDx Wellington to talk about how amazing female sharks are, but also mm -hmm. the female scientists who are studying these animals. I pitched the idea to TEDx Wellington, and they loved it enough to honor me with a spot. Were you nervous about giving a TED Talk? Because for me, I think to be on a stage like that would be quite, yeah, frightening. Oh, heck yes. I was so nervous to go in front because, you know, it was not only a lot of people there, but I also knew we were live streaming and yeah. this was eventually going to be on YouTube. So it was really the first big thing yeah. of mine to be on the Internet forever. And I also knew what I was talking about is something that a lot of people don't believe that anything is wrong with the representation that we have nowadays yeah. of women and scientists. And basically my whole talk is Yes, there is something wrong, and this is why. <laughs> Good on you, Melissa. There's two really important topics that you're addressing. I heard you say that you wish you had more relatable role models growing up to have a female Latina marine scientist to look up to. I believe you've become such a role model and a source of inspiration for the younger Melissa Marquezes out there. Is there anything you would recommend for young female scientists, anything you have learned along your journey that you would like to share with them? I'm really lucky to have a large enough platform that allows for young ones who are interested in marine science to look up to me if they so choose. 
So, you know, I wish I had seen a woman during Shark Fest or Shark Week when I was growing up. And for two years now, I've been flooded with messages from parents of young kids, of mm -hmm. kids themselves, and even adults. It's refreshing to see a woman on Shark Week or to see a Latina girl who looks just like them mm -hmm. and gives them inspiration to stick to their dreams. I think that would be my biggest advice is that if you are doing something that you love, whatever this is, mm -hmm. keep at it. You know, I'm lucky to say that I love my job. And I think that enthusiasm and passion I have for my job shines through mm -hmm. in my work and my outreach efforts. And not many people get that sort of satisfaction from their job. It was funny during Trek Week this year. Mm -hmm. I had someone tweet something that essentially said along the lines, we all need to aspire to find something that brings us as much joy as Shark Week does to Melissa Marquez. <laughs> oh, that's great. And I was like, you're not wrong. <laughs> I don't work a day in my life because I absolutely love what I'm doing. Not only just with Shark Research, but with My Conciencia Azul, with the Finns United mm -hmm. Initiative, with writing my book, with speaking. I love this. If you have something that you love, stick with it. Even if it gets lonely, even if it gets hard, because it does, it does mm -hmm. get lonely and it does get hard. If it's something that you wake up every day with a smile on your face and with that thought in your head of, I love this, keep at it. Because for me, this being a marine biologist is what makes me happiest. And I mm -hmm. never give that up. I have one question now that you're talking about the enthusiastic Shark Week quote. Do you have a gif, right, on Shark Week? <laughs> I have a gif, yeah. Um, if you look up Melissa space Shark Week and one word, or if you look up So Amazing, apparently my face is there of me saying So Amazing, which comes from a bit of um, this past Shark Week show, so the Killzone one, yeah. uh, where I was talking about the sharks going after this seal rover that we had, and it would, to be honest, it was very amazing. So <laughs> my enthusiasm is justified. I'm going to check it out straight after. That's awesome. <laughs> so my final question for the interview today, if you could get one message across to everyone listening about sharks and about our ocean in general, what would that be? If they took away anything from sharks, it would be the diversity of them. So for sharks alone, there's over 500 species and we're finding new species all the time. We just found one right before Shark Week and each one of them plays a unique and important role in their respective ecosystem. Removing them from that would cause dire consequences, not just to their own little habitat, but to the ocean in whole. So I don't think people should be afraid of sharks. I think they need to be afraid of an ocean without them because they keep the ocean healthy. Without a healthy ocean, you don't have a healthy planet. Thank you, Melissa, for coming on the show and sharing your knowledge. Thanks for having me. I've been an avid listener and you've been doing amazing work and I'm super excited to have another podcast in my rotation to listen to. Oh, thank you. And all the best with your PhD at Curtin University. Thank you. And listeners, that's a wrap. I hope you learned something new today about sharks and about science communication. Melissa is a good role model for us all, someone who inspired me and hopefully you as well to believe in yourself and to have the courage to speak your truth. 
I'll be sharing her brilliant TEDx talk, as well as some of the other projects she is a part of. So make sure to check out the podcast online and on social media. This podcast is created by Michael Heltzinger, but it wouldn't happen without your support. So, listeners, thank you for tuning in today. Please share the podcast around, and if you want to be a champion, subscribe to the podcast online with Apple Podcasts, where you can keep up to date with each episode. Let me know what you think as well by leaving a review, and of course, if you have any questions or anything, please feel free to send me a message, and I would love to hear some feedback. Thank you to ORFM. You guys rock, especially Domi, and to everyone else who has helped out so far. I also want to thank a friend and DJ Kino Regan for the introductory music track and also the very talented West Australian musician Michael Dunstan for this background music instrumental. And finally, Melissa Marquez, our exceptional guest today. Thanks Melissa for coming onto the show and leading by example. Take care people both yourselves and the planet and I'll see you next episode. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.